0: Welcome back, friends, to the Hill of Roses, where we come once again to spread our United Progressive Movement. Today, we have a very special treat. We're kicking off our first one-on-one interview, and we have a special guest for us. We have a person from my own home state running against another Democratic incumbent. We have here Javon Walker. Wanted to tell the folks a little bit about yourself, Javon? I know you just ran an election against Frank Pallone, and are you excited and ramping up currently for another takedown of him?
1: Yes, we currently are. Uh, I did run as a candidate uh, for the House of Representatives in District 6 against Frank Pallone in 2018. Uh, after my primary loss, I was able to help other people on their campaigns, personal friends of mine, uh, helped a friend run for mayor of New Brunswick named Charlie Craddaville, as well as the General Assembly candidate and Ron Rivers. They were both progressive candidates. I learned a lot throughout uh, 20, the rest of 2018 and 2019 uh, during the campaigns. So after that, I was able to gear up and be ready for this campaign. It's a big it's a big year coming up. Uh, A lot of different races are going to be Senate races, freeholder races, a lot of local candidate races, presidential election. It's a big year. So this is the best time for us to come in and try to get the uh, incumbents out.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel like this election cycle has a ton of potential. I'd be curious to know what was like the biggest lesson you learned from trying at it the first time?
1: biggest lesson was do not do everything by myself. Um, as a rogue candidate in 2018, my primary goal was to get on the ballot. I thought I was going to win. Uh, I clearly did not, but my main goal was getting on the ballot. It had not happened since 1994, where yeah. uh, a challenger tried to go against the uh, entrenched incumbent, uh, Representative Palone. Where I just wanted to get on the ballot and I did everything on my own Uh, was not a good idea. I did get on the ballot. There were results. You know, I I did get a debate. I did get 14 percent of the vote. But it's a community effort where it comes to being able to try and do what we're trying to do this time. Uh, That was the biggest lesson learned.
0: Yeah, I I truly agree with you. As much as we all want to be headstrong in terms of our vision, we always need the collective action of a united grassroots movement if we're going to have any success, and so that comes with listening and taking counsel. So I, I know you've been someone from New Jersey for a large part of your life, but it wasn't your entire life. So you came also growing up from Georgia. I'd be curious to know, what do you think is something in terms of perspective that we can take down from like Georgian culture compared to what we have here in New Jersey to possibly change life for the better here potentially a little bit?
1: Probably one of the best, uh, best things I could say learning from Georgia was uh, the presence of agriculture. Uh, Jersey, especially in places like Newark and Jersey City and New Brunswick, it's a lot of urban areas where it's not a lot of agriculture. I think if more people learn how to be able to cultivate agriculture, whether in their backyards or whether they knew how to grow gardens or even you know have a plot of land where you're able to grow anything in your backyard or in the front yard, We can have a lot of community programs where we know what seeds to buy. You know, there are a lot of seeds that you can buy from big stores like Home Depot and Lowe's that might not be the best stuff because it has bad stuff in it. Um, But if you knew where to find the right seeds, at, if you had the proper education on how to cultivate uh, agriculture, whether again, whether it's in your yard or whether you have a personal garden, we can do a lot, not just for ourselves, but also for our community. Um, there would be a lot less dependence on uh, going to the grocery store and picking apples or bananas or peaches or whatever. If you had your own uh, dependence on a community program like that, we wouldn't have to go to the grocery store. It would be less money we're spending and as well as we know what we're eating.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you When the need for us to actually localize our agriculture. just We save so much on so many varieties of things. First, you know, all that transportation costs of actually shipping stuff from across the country is a terrible pollutant for us. We're also going to have the actual idea of constantly planting stuff that are out of seasons. You're not even getting good quality stuff. And so this is actually causing us to need more land to actually develop on so that we can hit a completely year-round demand on all these agricultural products that normally back in the day we would have organically come into our supply chain And we wouldn't have all this actual demand for expansion. Um, So I'm curious to know, you as a younger candidate compared to a lot of politicians in this race, uh, what do you think is something that you can take from just having come from the college experience? I know you went to Rutgers. What does that kind of touch on to you as an experience that's different from a lot of the peers that are a little bit more senior now?
1: Well, I'm more in touch with what's going on uh, in the current generation as well as what's going on in the future. A lot of people that are politicians are in the, you know, they're in the 30s to upper 80s. Uh, they're out of touch with the common person and what the problems of the younger generation are going through. Uh, I'm, I'm four years out of college, and I know how heavy student loans can bear burden on students. I know how expensive tuition can be. Even Rutgers just announced today that they're going to increase tuition, I think, 2.9% uh, for the incoming student, for the for the students for next year. Um, and it's it's awful. The Board of Governors, they decided to increase the tuition. They said that the reason why was because of the teacher salary, um, the the faculty itself and the salaries. I, I totally agree with it, but I don't think that uh, asking students to pay 2.9% more students or their parents is the right way to go. Um, so that's just another one. Tuition, student loans, the environment itself, like these are very serious problems that me, you, and a lot of people of our generation and younger generations are going to be suffering with. And it's not just us, but again, you know, a lot of these politicians, their grandkids and great grandkids are going to be the ones coming up in this. Um, And that's just a first person POV I can give to constituents on the campaign trail about what's going on in their lives now and what's going to go on, you know, 10 years from now. Yeah, I mean, I think one
0: of the biggest things that a lot of people have to also understand is that there's going to be a large variety of experiences that are coming from the college environment that are going to be for the beneficial. I know one thing that you actually explained on your uh, campaign page was that you had studied abroad, uh, that you had actually gone to Prague. And this is one of those few opportunities where a lot of people, I don't think, actually get the exposure to be in foreign countries, especially European countries, for an Mm. experienced amount of time. Like, I think a whole semester you said you had went. I'd be curious. What's something you got to learn from that experience that college brought you in that international experience?
1: The biggest part of it was learning how things are done in other countries. You know, being from the states, we learn a one-way mind where there are so many, so many different controls and procedures put in place that we follow. We don't question it. We don't understand the logic behind it. And you know, being in a different country, says as the Czech Republic. Uh, you see it from a different perspective on how ignorant some of our ways are and why it's better ways to do certain things. Um, for example, um, uh, the way that we eat here is we eat our biggest meal at like six or seven o'clock at night and then we fall asleep where we don't burn off any calories. Usually, in European standards, you eat your biggest meal at about 12 o'clock or one o'clock. That way you're able to burn off the calories between then. So, you know, when, when you think about how Americans are much heavier, they have weight problems and stuff like that, you know, it comes down to science. And the states are not. We don't really delve off of a lot of logic and the reason why we do things. We do it because uh, it's an, that's that's our system and those are our procedures. Um, but being in Prague, it gave me a new perspective on how people think differently in other parts of the world, how they think differently of us, um, why they do certain things, but it's, it's really a great thing. And if I were to be elected, I would significantly increase, the uh, department of state funding because I think more people should be able to have the opportunity to sh- travel abroad or study abroad in a foreign country. I didn't, I don't come from a, you know, an upper middle class or a wealthy household, I just had a grandfather that was very willing to help me out during a semester and being able to achieve, help me achieve my dreams of studying in a foreign country.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I think the experience of being able to be in a foreign country really opens your eyes up to cultures that are beyond our own. It's always great when we can have experiences even across our country, but it's truly a different culture shock going abroad. I think one of the biggest things I've always advocated here on my show as well is this Worlds of Service program, which has been an experience of having two years abroad doing humanitarian aid work with all of the nations within the UN so that we can try and actually build unity as well as exposure to different culture. So I totally agree with you. We need to try and expand that. I think one of the big themes I saw from your page is really this kind of transformation Mm -hmm. from what was the status quo. Uh, to truly reform what the American dream can be, do you want to kind of touch on what you think like this new status quo should be and why today's status quo is not working for you?
1: Well the status quo that has that has worked for previous generations is exactly that it 's worked for previous generations it 's not worked for uh generation generation y hasn 't worked for millennials it's not going to work for generation z um these are these are policies that Were put in place not just by myself but by a lot of people. um, That is going to help the future of our economy of our country. When you talk about eliminating student loan debt, you talk about tuition-free college. Like these are certain these are programs where it's going to help build the economic engine of the United States within the next generation, next couple generations. You're going to have leaders of the country that. Are going to be able to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, be whatever they can be without having to worry about student loans. We want to, you know, we also want to look at our economic situation. Uh, we want to increase our median wage, median household wage. We want to be able to have jobs. We want to be able to do jobs where we know that the CEOs and the executives are not just continually pillaging money out of the company's fund, and you know, in hopes of just boosting their pay rather than the workers that actually do the work for them. These are these these are just policies in place where we can create another economic boom, not just recessions, not not, you know, not just peaks and valleys, but we can continually be on the rise.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of that economic overhaul in terms of having a less volatile and more sustainable culture. And I think that's really true. And One of the things about the economy is just truly how multifaceted it is. It touches on all of these different factors in terms of policy across the board, because if we're funding one area that's taking care of people in one way, and that affects productivity over the whole. So I'd be kind of curious. I've seen your platform, and you broke it down into so many different categories. It was really a treat to go through it all in that specific amount. So I just kind of wanted to touch on one question from each of like the different policy areas you had on your platform and have you explain where you kind of stand and elaborate just a little bit more out there for the folks. All of your platform, I'm going to link that down below for everyone to check out so that you can go out and support Javon here so that when you give all these answers that people are thrilled about, they can make that actually turn into action here. So the first one I really wanted to get clear is on healthcare. So it said that you wanted to support a Medicare for all system. So I I just want to clarify, is that a single payer model or is that a public option model?
1: It's a single payer model. Um, I would, I would, I will be honest. Uh, I want a single payer system. I want Medicare for all. You know, if I'm elected first day, I'm co-sponsoring a bill. I do say that private insurance should be optional um, for people. And it's not going to be the middle class. It's not going to be the working poor. like the private, the optional private, uh, health insurance will be for the rich because some of them they just don't want to worry they don't want government health care um and they want the the perks the better service so they can continually to have optional private insurance as for people like yourself and myself pu- the public um the public sector will be able to pay for our health care. We will have a Medicare for all where we're guaranteed health care. Everyone in the country will be guaranteed health care. Uh, but again, I do want private uh, private health insurance optional for uh, the people that they don't want to rely on the public sector's uh, health, health insurance plan.
0: To just clarify there, so is that essentially you'd have the public option as the transitionary plan, or is this additional p- private insurance Supplemental above what Medicare for all is providing to all people,
1: right? It's the latter private. So private insurance would be the supplement to anybody that that, you know, they want extra health insurance. Medicare for all will be able to cover everybody. And I mean, that's a system in Germany where Germany has they have a single they have a a multi multi payer system where they have a government insurance for all that's mandatory for all uh, Germans or German citizens, or, as well as German permanent residents, and as well as they have optional private insurance. I think that it works out for all parties where uh, the middle class and the working poor, they're guaranteed health care, and as well as the private health insurers that do want to make profit, they'll profit off of the rich. The rich people, they, they don't want to worry about government insurance. So let them continue paying high, high deductibles and high premiums for the optional insurance that they want.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think one of the things we all have to realize is that any program is still going to be a use of economic funds. We're not going to be providing these concierge services. There is going to be a baseline of care that we are providing. And that is laid out specifically within the Medicare for All bill. We're doing primary care. We're doing emergency care. We're making sure that we can actually give you mental health services, uh, drug addiction treatments. There is a litany of things and if you haven't read it yet, it's actually not as cumbersome to read as some of you might think diving into the actual logistics of this policy. It's not that long of a bill. So I highly recommend people actually dive into it because it's not as scary as people want to fear monger it. You're still getting your same doctors. You're still getting your same hospitals. And I think it's just so much common sense to have these economies of scale. So I'm glad you're on board with the single payer model. So Absolutely. The, the next one I wanted to go to is your banking section. One of the things Mm -hmm. I wanted to know is a platform that Bernie Sanders and many of the candidates within the 2020 cycle have been discussing a financial speculation tax, where it's essentially trying to prevent all these high frequency traders, as well as trying to recoup some of the money that we need for our economic programs to pay for it through the Wall Street industries. So I'd be curious, do you support a financial speculation tax?
1: I do. Um, I do think it's hard to implement a Wall Street speculation tax if it's a fixed rate like that, such as, you know, if there's a 1% tax that the financial institution knows that they're going to be, that they're going to, it's going to cost them from the IRS or the federal government in general, they're going to try and pass down that cost to the consumer. So I think a better way would be to probably Uh, calculate the tax when it comes to um, the time that companies file their 1040s or their income tax, where that's when you get them rather than a fixed cost. Um, I think of it as whenever you use a debit or a credit card, whenever you go to the restaurant, there's a 3% transaction fee. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that whenever you use that debit or credit card, the fee's already included in the cost. So we don't think of it because it's not on the receipt. And that might be the same way with the Wall Street transaction tax. If there's a if there's a way that we're able to tax them without it being passed down to the consumer, then I'm totally for it. I just think that it would be better as a whammy when it comes to tax time rather than each transaction. Mm. I I can understand that because it
0: may have these incentives for spending behavior. So you don't want to necessarily reduce investment on the whole on each ding of the try because it makes it right. so that your risk tolerance is much. You need a lot more security to take that. But that's also kind of the upside. So I'd be kind of curious, how do you try and combat the volatility that our Wall Street industries can bring currently? We just had the big recession that we had in 2008. And a lot of the people now are trying to signal we're calling for a new recession. Like Elizabeth Warren, just a couple Mm -hmm. of days ago, said that we are on the precipice of a new one. How do you try and... Combat some of that volatility that Wall Street can bring.
1: Well, I think that the way that we can do it is by generating enough economic productivity within the public sector. Um, where it comes to infrastructure plans, where it comes to healthcare, there's a. I mean, we spend a lot on um, healthcare itself. We spend a lot on our infrastructure, even though we need much more. It doesn't look like we spend much on infrastructure, but. The amount of spending that we do for the infrastructure is a way of economic productivity. And the reason why I say that we should do that in infrastructure is, you know, a sharp contrast to our military spending, where it significantly improves our GDP numbers. But look at the damage that we do through our military, uh, through our military budget. So I think that if there is Wall Street volatility, I think a way for us to reduce it is for us to rely and be able to put money towards infrastructure and making sure that our public sector is doing is doing the work that it needs to do.
0: Mm, I understand that where you're basically saying you can actually bring some security by increasing overall government spending so that net spending in the economy is more balanced between government and private sector. So if one goes belly up, the other is still kicking along. So, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from there. So uh, the next section I wanted to touch on you, we've kind of alluded to it beforehand with higher education, but I kind of wanted to understand in terms of secondary education, where we have most of our, if not all of our citizens going through compared to only the 67% that go to college. How do you try and transform our primary education system with systems like common core and standardized testing being the model in which we are trying to teach kids today skills compared to actual takeaway skills that they may actually need. We've been seeing all these supplemental courses that millennials are now needing to take to actually just gain some of the basic skills like doing your taxes or you know culinary skills or changing attire and there are all these just basic fundamental skills that people are not being taught anymore and I'd be curious to know what is your system is it more nationalizing the education system localizing what's your philosophy to education
1: I think that, you know, when you take into account all the local education that you can have, such as my education in agriculture, uh, middle school and high school, I think that you can nationalize it because even though people in New Jersey might not be well-versed in agriculture education, there is a benefit to people in Georgia having it. I think if, if the, there's a positive benefit if you're able to share what you know with everyone across the nation. By nationalizing that, you know, people in New Jersey can learn agriculture education, people in uh, Georgia can learn technical education like computer software classes or or software development classes where they're learning how to program and code. Like those are great systems where if we put into place in a primary education, our students are gonna be much more competitive with the rest of the world. You look at the you look at the the stature of the United States against everyone else and other countries and other competitive countries. We lag behind in math, we lag behind in science. We we don't know how to pay our taxes. We don't know how to change a tire, hem pants, none of that stuff. And it's it's a complete failure on the education department for the public sector, as well as the the institutions in place by our local governments. Um, we're failing our students, and I think it's very important that we stick we stay away from, you know, we're wondering about what the surface area of a triangle is, and try to get back to knowing how to do our taxes because. At the end of the day, I want everyone to be self-sufficient where they know how to be able to do everything without having to rely or having to pay somebody else to do it. If students, if they graduate 12th grade and they knew how to change a tire or do their taxes, there are hundreds of dollars that they're saving by being able to do that. Yeah, so I, I hear you in
0: terms of a lot of the skills we need to transform and totally agree with you, but do you think that's a reform of what is currently being proposed in our Common Core of having a federalized model? Or do we relinquish that control more to the actual states to control their education and provide
1: them funds through like grants and so on? I understand. I th- I think it should definitely be nationalized. I think if you if you pay too much lo- too much attention locally and you give power to the states and the local governments, I think that it can get very out of hand. And I think that a lot of people are not going to be up to par with other counter counterparts in the rest of the country uh, if you leave it as a local thing. Education is something that should be afforded. To all, city, to all Americans by the education department, and we can't make a mistake with that. Everyone has to be able to uh, be afforded a great education in the United States, and I think that if we have a nationalized education system rather than localized, we will be much better off.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. We need to close skill gaps around this country so we can actually properly fill the supply so we don't have so much inequality between coastal areas and rural areas. We can have these skills everywhere so that all these communities can get built up. So the, the next one I had is you kind of broke it down into your education and then you went into post-secondary education. So I, I just wanted to clarify with you, did you have a proposal for free tuition or debt-free college as the solution to try and solve the cost of our post-secondary education system?
1: What would be, how would you describe a debt-free college?
0: Just uh, a, curious. A debt-free college is usually a means-tested program where essentially they would see how much you have already capable to spend within a certain threshold of your total wealth towards your education, and the rest of it would make debt-free for you. So they would cover that as your loans, and you wouldn't have any debt there.
1: Gotcha. Okay, I understand. Um, I would go with tuition-free college. I think that that's the better method, um, because if you look at wealth – uh, people are very able to cover up their wealth. I mean, you look at you look at the way that rich people are able to, you know, they, they buy stuff that you can't be able to appraise. Um, there's an easy way for you to cover up that wealth. With tuition-free college, I think that all students are able to be afforded a great opportunity for them to be educated. Um, and not just tuition itself. Uh, I want to make tuition-free college, but I also want to be able to get into the uh, the crooks and nannies of our education, um, tu- not tuition system, but the way that we pay education. Where you look at room and board, you know, at Rutgers, I think room and board is probably like twelve thousand dollars, and the rooms are eight thousand dollars. But the rooms are, you know, a hundred years old. You're paying eight thousand dollars for eight months worth of living. Where if you lived off campus, you would probably be yeah. able to save fifty percent of that. You look at the the meal plans, and the meal plans are the most expensive, and students or parents usually pay like fourteen dollars a meal. To be able to support a ridiculous amount of dining budget, um, I want to be able to get to that and be able to find out how much all these services cost, and that's what you charge students. Um, and as well, a lot of students are going to be able to live off of campus, or they'll be able to get lower rates on their room and board because uh, they're just being they're just being pillaged. Both the the students and the parents are being robbed for their money. Um, and a, a great uh, backup reason is. Uh, at Rutgers, if you didn't use up your full meal plan, you basically lost it. The students and the parents lost the money. If if the if the meal plan was $4,000 and you only ate up $1,000, the university would just take $3,000 from you. It's not right. And I think that if we had a more comprehensive plan where we're able to understand how much money it takes for the students to get a meal plan or a room and board, that's what we charge them instead.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I would say the majority of my cost, also going to a public university, I went to Binghamton University, I would say the majority of the cost was actually, as you just described, room and board, the meal plan. There was all these extra costs that really went above and beyond tuition, which luckily I was coming from a background where I was able to support that cost. But I didn't necessarily think it was a system that was going to be a fair for a lot of my colleagues that actually ended up having to drop out due to cost, which is such a tragic thing. When you're putting in this investment, you're thinking you're going to go all the way for a degree. But if the financial burden stops you partway through, because unfortunately, one of my friends lost their parents, so they couldn't have that person who was providing for them beforehand, that kind of causes a major shift in one's life trajectory, now needing to completely regroup and pick up the pieces where This original cost burden of just at least a tuition could have made it a lot easier in the first place. So I I totally think we need to try and encourage education, but I'd be curious. As I said before, there's only 67% of people who go to college in some degree currently. How do you account for those 33% of people needing to potentially take on some of that burden? Is it through the funding of how we actually address these programs, or is it somehow an opt-in system where only the people who are getting the free education are the ones paying for that.
1: So when you're talking about, how about like something like trade school, would that be able to sufficiently cover like the 33%? I think everybody has, I think everybody has a skill uh, that they're able to offer. I don't think everyone is meant for coll- meant for a four-year public uh, college or university or to two-year public uh, college or university. I think a lot of people can be able to into the trade business um, where they're able to become culinary artists or mechanics or automotive technicians anything where hvac conductors i think that there are a lot of um there's a lot of opportunity for that 33 percent and even with the trade school that's not going to equate to the 33 percent i think if we all offered more Uh, entrepreneurship classes and courses for a lot of people. A lot of people want to be able to open a business and not work for others for the rest of their life. That 33% is not made up of people that just can't get into college. That 33% is made up of people that just want to pursue other opportunities and other avenues. I think if we opened up trade school as well as entrepreneurship courses and be able to help them understand how it is to run a business, give them on the site job training or on the site training internships or externships we would have a much more productive economy and more people would be represented
0: yeah i totally agree we need to have more continuous education programs i think if you open up trade school opportunities that person who unfortunately maybe gets a degree that's not working out for them uh, sadly that is still a fact of our economy a lot of people who get advanced degrees are still ending up with minimum wage jobs, they could potentially retrain themselves in these trade schools too. It doesn't have to be just for the people that never went to college. It could be a source of retraining for all people to be able to get new skills. And I think that's something we should all strive for, continuous education. Um, yeah. So I, I'd next be kind of curious. We've been talking about a lot of these issues that are affecting like, young people in terms of education. I'd like to just discuss more in terms of the older generation. One of the things that has been really straggling is everyone says social security, it's going to go completely bankrupt. And I think that's just such a foolhardy thing for an independent program that's very well funded, but they keep just pillaging it. So I'd be curious. I saw on your platform you had solutions to try and expand or lift the cap. What do you think is the real way that we can actually get this done? It seems so common sense, but there just hasn't been... The political movement to actually get this done.
1: Yeah, so I think that again, I think the right way for us to be able to solve Social Security is for us to remove the payroll tax cap. Um, I believe that the the cap is at one hundred eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. I believe that's what the payroll tax cap is. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're if you work and you get paid one hundred eighteen thousand five hundred dollars, you pay up to that amount. Uh, for the payroll tax. If you get paid $200,000, you only have to pay up to $118,000 in change on your payroll tax. If we remove that cap, we will be able to fully fund uh Social Security. Uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of CEOs that make millions of dollars in their salary as well as total compensation. Well I want to be able to tax, I want to be able to remove that cap and be able to tax their full, full compensation, not just a salary, but in terms of their um, their total compensation with their stock options and their grants and any type of other compensation that they get. We have to get into that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest questions we're all going to have to address is how do we actually just get the wealthy to pay their fair share? And I think this has actually caused such of the burden of income inequality is we all like to say these mega institutions are giving us jobs and so on. But if they're not paying taxes... It's like we're subsidizing them, but really it's just they're getting away with such tax loopholes where it's unfair for all these small businesses. So I'd be kind of curious, what's your solution to address this income inequality gap due to just them not paying their fair
1: share? Are you talking in terms of companies or uh, wealthy executives? Corporate America here. Okay. So in terms of the companies, I think that we need to... Either keep the income tax as is, a flat tax for all businesses, and I would say all large businesses, not small businesses. If there is any company that we need to subsidize, it would be small businesses for people getting getting off the ground and trying to start their own company. Um, in terms of the large businesses like the large banks and large financial institutions that offshore their jobs, I think we need a flat tax. Uh, remove those loopholes, and as well, if, they, if these companies want to offshore jobs like we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years, I believe that these companies should pay an exit tax. Um, whenever they file their their income taxes for the year, I think that there should be an exit tax, a retroactive exit tax that comes from the, from the IRS where they can't already account for it. They just have to pay the tax and be done with it. And I think that that would discourage a lot of uh, offshoring jobs and be able to keep jobs in, in the United States.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with you. One of the things, unfortunately, that comes with my job is a lot of these offshoring projects. It's being seen in automation And the death of a lot of these jobs that are normally being done in America are now being substituted by robots as well as with foreign labor. So I got to agree with you. We need to start fixing the solution where corporate America isn't just worried about the shareholders bottom line, but the actual communities and workers that were constituting them. So I'd be curious in terms of the next step, which is just beyond corporate America, but the wealthy CEOs and the top 1% people how do you try and just address where we're at historic levels of income inequality? Is there new social programs they're adding? Is it new taxation like wealth taxes? What's the way we try and go at this problem?
1: So the way that I broke it down on, on our platform is uh, we're going to address income inequality and wealth inequality because they're two, separate, they're two separate categories. The income inequality is the wealthy CEO that gets paid uh, let's say 20 million dollars while the the work, while the uh, lowest paid worker gets paid minimum wage like 15,000 annually. So I think what we would do is we would scrap the payroll tax cap where they get they they pay the payroll tax on all their all their compensation not just the salary but any capital gains over 250,000 that they get from their current role will be taxed at their marginal income tax rate. So the current um the current income tax rate for the highest bracket is 37% if we were to increase that to 70% for the wealth for the for the richest yeah um would generate a lot more revenue off of taxes from that specific individual and that's just the salary itself but i want to be able to get into the capital gains because You know, 10 years ago during the recession, a lot of people like uh, Vikram Pandit, who was the Bank of America CEO, Michael Bloomberg, what they did was they took a dollar in salary for the year. So how do you tax 70 percent of a dollar when they're able to take home 10, 20, 30 million dollars in stock options that, you know, the current IRS law states, if you hold it over a year, you only pay 15 percent. So that's it's it's really incentivizing. Uh, the wealthy to continue getting stock options while the worker pays the 20 something percent in their marginal income tax rate. So what I would do for the rich individuals is I would increase the tax rate up to 70% for the largest, for the uh, richest individuals off of their total compensation. I would scrap that payroll tax cap and as well as any wealth that they have over, any person worth over $5 million I, there would be 45, 45% wealth tax rate, as well as a 3% for every subsequent year.
0: That's pretty good. That's a pretty distributive effect. I would wonder how you would actually get people to not try and flee at a 45% all at once. It seems like it's a institutional problem where we are hiding money overseas in terms of trying to get it so you can't grab these assets. How do you actually try and keep people to actually pay up when we're trying to implement these policies and not have capital flight?
1: I think that what we would have to what we would have to do, as in the IRS, you would have to have like a five year look back period. You have to the IRS will have to look at what are the reportable assets. Um, you'd be able to see who's reporting their assets from five years ago and who just stopped reporting their assets after after hopefully our tax law uh, is being passed. Where you'd be able to see what reportable assets are not being disclosed anymore, uh, where people are moving their money, and I mean, if people are going to pay capital gains, they're going to have to report all of those assets. So, um, we're, it's going to have to be a very intricate way of us implementing this policy. But I think it, for the for the better, for the greater good, I think it's a, it's a great policy for us to have. And plus, you know, you think about all the money that's being transferred in other countries. They still have to report that at the end of the day. So if they choose not to report it, it's up to the Department of Justice for them to go into those financial institutions and be able to seize that money. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great answer. I think we just need to actually use more of our justice towards the top. Too often we're using our resources just towards the bottom. And I think that's really to our discredit. And so that actually moves me on to the next section on your platform, which is criminal justice. And I really wanted to just understand a base level of How do you think we can actually regain trust in these institutions of criminal justice, more importantly, our police departments? Do you think we can rebuild trust, or do they need to be fundamentally changed in the structure that they work today?
1: Fundamentally changed, and it's not just with the police system. Um, You have to remember that everyone that... from the police officer that stops you to the judge that gives a sentence they're all on the same payroll the public defender the 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 prosecutor the judge the police officer they're all on the same payroll we don't reform our criminals you know whether it's a misdemeanor all the way up to a life or a death death penalty uh, we don't reform our criminals we don't reform them in a system where we learn from what we've done and we're able to be better people we are part of a system that, profits off of wrongdoing, which is not a good thing. You know, you you think about somebody that gets stopped on the road and they have, you know, it's a traffic ticket, but what happens after the traffic ticket? You have to go to court. You have to take a day off. You have to miss a day of wages. You have to pay a fine. You have to pay thirty-eight dollars or thirty-three dollars in court fees. You have to pay, yeah, you have to argue with the prosecutor for them to lower the charge. And then if you get the traffic ticket, that gets sent over to your insurance company. That's even more money that you're dishing out. So if if The profit system is for you to really reform yourself. It's a a horrible way of implementing it. And I think that if we were to reform our criminal justice system, it would have to be with being able to reform people, Um, have them in programs where they're able to do community service. You know, if somebody's drunk driving, put them in a program where, you know, I understand drunk driving is a very serious crime and people should go to jail for it. Um, But I think it's also a good reason for them to go to a mad program or be able to volunteer with people that are victims of drunk driving, being able to see the crime that they did in the eyes of the people that were victims of it. That's the way that we're able to reform our criminal justice system. You know, the, the, for the criminal to be able to see in the eyes of the victim, not just sitting in a cell, being in solitary confinement, you know, our criminal justice system, it, It really shackles people. Like if you've ever seen people that have done time in prison and by the time they come out, they're completely different people. They're they're You know, they're they're secluded from society. They don't like speaking. It's really awful, especially, you know, you look at a 23 hour lockdown for some of our criminals. Like that has a really negative impact on people that have been through the prison system there. There it's really like it's really enslavement. Um, It really breaks a person's spirit for being in prison that long. It's an awful profit driving system. Absolutely awful. Yeah, I
0: have to agree with you. There's three big things I think you touched on there. There's first like that cultural and stigma appearance where we don't actually make it easy for people to rehabilitate. The ability for people to actually even get back out into society after they have paid their time in terms of not being able to vote not being able to get employment easily because of practices of like needing to check off that box saying yeah I was a criminal but you know I paid my time and I learned my lesson where most people just honestly they throw it out the door still which is unfortunate mm-hmm. so I think there are practices in terms of rehabilitation that you really pointed on it's you got to keep them still connected with the community so they can understand and still have that social connection where they can understand why the thing was wrong once you get thrown away it's like What good is this now if I'm just going to be gone forever? I can't actually rectify my wrong uh, because you're going to be thrown away. You're just now punished. You're not actually trying to fix your wrong. So I think you're absolutely spot on there and getting them more involved in the community is the right way to do that. And I think, honestly, the fundamental problem is so much of this is tied still to our money in politics. We have these lobbies that are trying to enforce the way we have laws on the books like, in terms of the alcohol and tobacco industries trying to keep marijuana illegal. So we have more people in prison due to marijuana charges. We have yeah. a lot of money in politics in terms of not being able to pass common sense gun control. So people are flooded with guns on our streets. And so police officers are more trigger happy because they think their lives are constantly in peril because of this flood of guns. So it's yeah. like we have a lot yeah. of this money in politics issues that are fundamental in trying to actually get any of these changes for criminals lives. What do you think is a way we can actually best get money out of our system?
1: Well, one thing we have to do is eliminate the lobby, the lobbies and the companies, the lobbyists that profit off of our criminal justice system. I don't think that it's, it's an abhorrent wrong for us to be able to profit off of our criminal justice system. But again, we need to be able to take out money from those companies that Profit, you know, such as Core Civics or Geo Group, they're able to send their lobbyists to the Department of Justice, they're able to send their lobbyists to Congress for them to lobby for private facilities. And in New Jersey, we have four privately run companies. And that comes from lobbyists of those two companies that are able to go to our state and local municipal you know county governments and be able to lobby for a privately run prison if we took money out of that it will be less of a conflict of interest it will be less of a, a possibility of having privately run facilities um, because once you have private companies whose main goal is to profit and be able to look at their bottom line if you take those out then it really becomes a social issue and for us to as a, as a country, to be able to rehabilitate criminals in our lives.
0: Yeah, I have to agree in the sense that we should not have any industry profiting off of suffering. I think that's just a, a common sense solution is people who would you would normally think, who should enforce the law? Well, it's the government. It should not be in private hands to imprison people. So I think a complete abolishment of the private prison industry, as well as the cash bail system, where a lot of the profiteering in terms of affording loans to prisoners comes into play. I think that, just as a common sense, get that politicking out of here. This should be a cash-free zone. This is right and wrong. That's where we should land on this. So I, I kind of want to just transition a little bit into something that's more of a area that affects all people rather than the most vulnerable amount among us. And that's transit and transportation. And I'd kind of be curious to know what you think the role is of the federal government in playing a hand with local mass transit.
1: I think that the federal government has a large role to play, uh, especially in terms of interstate commerce. Um, where you know, I used to work in New York, where I had to take the train in. I had to take New Jersey Transit in. I took New Jersey Transit, you know, for three years, and it was a, it was an abhorrent mess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still have that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely awful. And, you know, you look at the infrastructure put in place, such as those uh, Hudson tunnels, and they're 100 something years old. And you mean to tell me after 100 years that the federal government has not invested enough money for them to be able to uh, pay for two new tunnels? Yeah. Those those same tunnels were damaged from Hurricane Sandy, where they're still trying to repair the the damage, you know, seven years later from Hurricane Sandy. Um, the state governments have a large part to play, but I think the federal government, the federal government has an obligation to be able to make sure every American is safe on transportation. You know, whether it's whether it's tunnels, whether it's uh, roads, like any any system that we have in place for the role of transportation is a federal issue. And it's the federal government's role to make sure that every American is safe on the road and in the tunnels and not being hassled every day because of the inability for them to properly invest the right funds into it.
0: Okay, so you're essentially saying government on the federal level is providing the infrastructure so that you can supply whatever uh, transportation means you would like to select for your city on top of that. I think that's a fair point where it's kind of hard to influence each area by area, how specifically you're going to do your mass transportation system, because they don't understand the specifics of their community and the needs of their community as well from the federal level. So the the next thing I'm kind of curious on is jobs and the economy. All of these people who are doing their mass transit, these are people with jobs currently, but I, I want to understand how we can establish more of an economic floor. Is that coming from having programs like a jobs guarantee, where everyone is going to be guaranteed a federal job, potentially doing public works projects or domestic work? Or is it coming from programs like a UBI, where everyone is given a base level of income as a universal basic income?
1: I think a uh, federal jobs guarantee uh, is a, I think it's a better idea. Because if we had a federal jobs guarantee, such as like Public Works, it worked with the New Deal in the 30s where, you know, a lot of people were able to be given jobs and they were able to bring back a revitalized economy in the United States. And I think if we did that in, you know, 2021, uh, if I were to be elected in office and we had a federal jobs guarantee, I think that we can bring back and revitalize the U.S. economy again. You know, our economy has been stagnant for the last 10 plus years. And I think that if we were to have a federal jobs guarantee, you know, under the backing of the Green New Deal, where we have that federal jobs guarantee, I think that we would be able to bring back our economy. We'd be able to put a lot of people in jobs and we'd be able to have enough economic productivity for us to continue and sustain our uh, productivity.
0: Yeah, and I think it would also probably help with a lot of these transit systems, as we were just talking about being able to rebuild our infrastructure systems, being able to maybe supply more of the actual transportation needs uh, for these communities. There's a lot of different jobs to put people to work. I always get a little little curious when it comes to the actual guarantee because that means we as the government can start having to predict what the future of work is going to be to constantly be able to provide people jobs and the necessary retraining for those future jobs when there is so much automation at play and we have retraining success rates between 14 and 28 percent. What do you think is the way we can actually be able to guarantee this for all people? Is it beyond just these infrastructure projects? Because that's where I'm trying to understand is I don't think a lot of people necessarily think they are currently capable of getting into these green infrastructure jobs.
1: I really think that's a great question. And it, it, it delves deeper than just hearing a federal jobs guarantee. Um, and this goes into with us retraining people. I think if the Department of Labor uh, or the Department of Education, whether they work together or separately, if they're able to retrain people, I think there is no job or no career that an American cannot have to be able to do If we were able to retrain, such as you know, if what if what if we retrain? What if we had a training program for people uh, in the fossil fuel industry in the twenties and thirties, like that was pretty booming back then uh, under Rockefeller? If we had a federal jobs guarantee where we work with green green jobs and green careers in the twenty tens and the twenty twenties, that would be great for the economy and will also benefit us environmentally. You know, there are so many different sectors that are going to come up within the next. 10, 20 years. And it's not just, you know, there's a lot that can be technologically related in what careers and what industries will be coming up. But if we're able to retrain, we're able to keep the ball rolling. We're able to make sure that people have jobs to be able to continue doing what they want to do. As long as it benefits Americans, as long as it puts people in jobs, we can't say no and retraining programs will be the best way for us to do it because we're never going to we're never going to stop training people. We're never going to stop trying to be ahead of the ball and understand what's the next curveball coming. Can we be on top of it? Can we retrain can we retrain enough people and train new people to be able to tackle the next thing coming up? Yeah, I 100% agree with you in the sense that you were talking before in terms of
0: just general education reforms and being able to expand the amount of trade school things, we can easily also retrain people in the new green jobs of the future because if we want to just wait around for these people to get retrained by themselves to you know, supply and demand the invisible hand of the market to get people to go to that green solution, as a lot of capitalists propose, is they are going to fix the problem through the free market. I think we need to take a little bit more of an active hand when it comes to climate change, given some of the deadlines we've been given from the UN in terms of the results saying we have like 10 years to really get in line with a sustainable curve in terms of what our emissions are currently. So I agree. We're going to be doing a lot of shifts to our economy to address fundamental problems and having some guarantee that you can be retrained well should be something we need to focus on because there is going to be radical shifts coming in the coming decades. So I'd be kind of curious as this note of the labor force comes into play, it also becomes something of a global economy. As the US has always been transitioning more and more into being this services industry, I'd be curious to know in terms of what your foreign policy is in terms of trying to balance between us being a manufacturing hub versus having more free trade where you have people manufacturing goods at cheaper prices than ourselves. How do you try and balance that perspective of free trade Versus being a actual manufacturing
1: hub here. It will honestly, it that's that's a very tough question. It's a very tough policy to implement because there is there there's good on both sides. Um, I don't want to lose all of our jobs to other countries because they simply have cheaper labor. Um, and I remember, you know, back growing up in the '90s, if you were to find American-made goods, they were some of the best goods made, um, better than a lot of the Latin American countries that make our goods but we can't, we can't ship away all of our jobs. We have to keep our jobs here. I think that if we were able to have a, a strong and robust manufacturing sector, that's bringing jobs back from other foreign countries as well as being able to export or keep our services within this country. And as well as not just that, but our labor force with green jobs, that would make us very competitive. If we had all three instead of just being reliant on one type of service that we provide, whether it's manufacturing, you know, hundred years ago or services now, we would have such a diverse pool of labor that we would be competitive with even China.
0: Yeah, I have to agree on the sense that we do need to fix the supply side in terms of having green job skills. But I'd be curious, there has to be kind of two sides to the sword. We're propping up all of these good technologies in the green sector and the skills needed to do that work. Do you believe we need to take corrective action on the current dirtier energies like carbon, where we kind of have these policies I've seen on your platform, like a carbon tax. Do you yeah. think that's the way we get at this problem of having carbon-based fuels just be not competitive?
1: I think that a carbon tax will still keep people in jobs, but it's able to put enough of a tax, enough of a burden on them where, where they will stop emitting as much CO2 into our environment. Um, I think it's a very good policy in place. I've seen other countries. They're able to do it. You know, they have a much smaller population than us. But in terms of, you know, scaling it to our population, it's very possible. If you have the right controls and procedures in in place, then it will it will be done. It will be done very effectively. Um, A carbon tax, I think, is a very good idea. And I I would be very happy to implement it. And if I'm elected to Congress, then I'll definitely uh, do my best to implement a carbon tax. It's, it's very necessary, but the way that we're just stagnant and status quo on the issue, it can't go on for too long. If we have until you know 2030, if we only have 10 more years to do it, we need to start it now.
0: I 100% agree we need to try and change the incentives on which types of energy sources we use so that we take the correct course. My one uh, concern when it comes to carbon taxes is it's a flat tax, as we know, on each actual unit of carbon that's used. So this usually comes as a cost burden more often to poor individuals being that it's the same amount for all people who are consuming. Uh, This led to the riots that happened in France because the actual system imposed austerity while imposing a carbon tax. So people weren't being taken care of and they were burdened with more cost. I'd be curious to know what programs you could see to help relieve some of that cost or redistribute those funds back to the poor people directly.
1: If you were, if we were to implement a carbon tax, I think that um, from what I've heard in debates and uh, primary candidates is that there should be dividends sent back to the to the um, to the residents of the country, uh, residents of the municipalities as well. Because if the companies are going to pay the tax and they're just going to send it back to the consumers, again, like you said, it's that flat tax. It's it's already known to the to the company, so they're going to distribute it down to the. Um, the residents, if we were able to make sure that there were dividends, if we had a uh, maybe a good way to implement that is 20 to 30 percent or 50 percent of that carbon tax is redistributed back to the residents and everyone's going to benefit. There's going to be less CO2 emitted to the to the ozone in our environment uh, from the companies and as well as 50 percent of that will be redistributed back to the residents. So that way the residents know what taxes that they're they're paying into the system you know, through being distributed by the company as well as what return that they'll get because we're going to have a greener environment.
0: Yeah, that's like Alaska's UBI type program where all of their citizens get $1,000 every year because of the oil money they have there. So it'd be kind of interesting to know that you could possibly embrace a UBI as part of that solution to a carbon tax, giving all Americans some of that money from the carbon tax. Um, but now let's let's go off of the economy for a little bit. I'd now be kind of curious in terms of trying to actually get a lot of these changes. It comes from fundamental electoral reforms to get the right people in place so we can get people like you in office. What is some of your ideas in terms of how we can make voting rights easier? I know one of the things you had mentioned on your platform is banning voter ID laws. Do you think that's one way to cause less disenfranchisement of the population so more people can vote?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that if we if we ban voter ID laws, I think a lot less people would be uh sent back at the polls. I know that in Georgia a lot of people were sent back from the polls um when it came to the Brian Kemp versus uh um Abrams, Stacey Abrams, uh, the governorship, the gubernatorial race. There were a lot of African Americans that were sent back from the polls because uh, their names weren't on the voter rolls. The voter rolls were purged. Uh, They didn't have the right ID with them. Some of them didn't have a a current ID. It was an absolutely awful system. And it's not just in Georgia, but I, I remember in Wisconsin for Scott Walker, he was running for governor again. And that's what happened where people were just sent back. Sent back home because they didn't have sufficient ID. Uh, it's a very discriminatory policy put in place, and it's only going to help, it really going to help Republicans and incumbents in power um, where they're able to send pe- people back. But not just voter ID laws, but being able to have automatic voter registration upon turning 18 years old. Um, I don't think it's really that difficult for uh, state governments to be able to register people once they turn 18 years old. Uh, as well as sending people mail-in ballots, I think every every citizen that is able to vote should be sent mail-in ballots because, you know, I've I've looked at the race myself when I ran in 2018. I think about 16% of the people in the district voted. 84% more people could have voted if they had mail-in ballots. Some people don't have the time of the day to make it to the polls. If you had mail-in ballots sent to everybody, it might be a cost to the to the county government, but for everyone to exercise their right to vote, they don't even have to go to the polls. They can just send in their 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 voter um their their ballot to the county government. That way, everyone's vote is counted. It's an ultimate form of representation. And just because people can't make it to the polls, doesn't mean they can't vote.
0: I hundred percent agree with you in terms of trying to expand it and give automatic registration to people. The one thing that made me curious is if we're distributing all of these forms so that people can mail in their votes. We're automatically registering them. Why not just automatically provide people with a voter registration card?
1: That's actually not a bad idea. Um, it's That's honestly not a bad idea. If everyone had a voter registration card, everyone would already be registered to vote, right? It would be the same as like automatic voter registration. But um, yeah, no, I think it works either way. If there was an automatic voter registration, everyone would be able to vote at any time that they please. If they had the voter registration card, it would be the same way. I think that that's another proposal that should definitely be added to the platform. And I'll definitely take you up on that because that's a very good idea. Yeah, I think it makes just a lot of
0: common sense. If you're lumping them together, automatically providing documents to them, automatically enrolling them, why not give them a card saying you are a participant in your democracy? So Yeah. yeah, I think that would be a great idea to potentially amend right there. But in terms of also getting more people to vote, it's in the process of, what they are getting to vote between. We have a lot of these binary choices. I'd be curious Mm -hmm. to know if you think the current voting system of straight up and down ballot versus something like a ranked choice voting system, how you square the best way we should actually choose people.
1: The the current system that we have in New Jersey is absolutely awful. It's a a closed primary, I believe, where uh, all Democratic voters vote for Democrats, all Republican voters uh, vote for Republicans. Uh, It's an awful system, and it only benefits the incumbents in charge because no matter what level you look at, let's say from 2020, it's going to be the president. I'm assuming uh, all the counties are going to give Cory Booker the line, and it's going to be for president. Cory Booker's running for senator. Uh, Let's say Frank Pallone's running for representative. All the way from top to bottom, there's already an incumbent in charge, Mm -hmm. and they're going to get the same ballot. And it just uh, drowns out the voice of all challengers such as myself or other people running for local seats. So I think that the the right system would be you lump everyone together. Um, I think it would be a better system where people can see, people can look at the platforms of each candidate and be able to understand who is the better candidate. Uh, maybe we should have a jungle primary where the top two get in because, um, you know, if there's six candidates and only two are the best, then I think the two best should be able to go into a runoff and be able to decide the election for The individuals and as well as the voters rather than the parties themselves. But ranked choice voting as well is a good idea because a lot of voters don't like certain candidates and they think that, you know, maybe in this race where there are three or four candidates, uh, maybe they don't think Representative Pallone is a good idea. I mean, a good choice, but maybe they see myself and another one of the opponents as a very good choice. So I think it's a very good idea where we're able to understand who are the better options rather than A or B. I
0: 100% agree with you there. I think we need to start choosing what we want rather than what we're against. A lot of our politics currently is fear-mongering from the opposition, and that causes more polarization. I think if we can make more distinct choices in saying what our voice actually is in terms of toleration, I think that becomes a more representative system. So I'd be kind of curious, as we kind of transition into almost discussing about Pologne, First, do you agree that we should have term limits in our current congressional system so that people like an incumbent of such length like Pallone should have been gone much sooner just because it's his time is gone?
1: Yeah, he should have been gone uh, like 20 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, implementing implementing term limits is uh, it's a policy that every uh, newcomer in Congress or any type of uh, public service that they're doing, they should be trying to implement. Um, because it shows that you should not be larger than your constituency. You should not continue to stay in office longer than you should be around. Um, I think that eight years is a good amount of time that any public servant should be in office. The president is limited to eight years now. I think that senators should have two terms of four years if they should, you know, be there that long. And as well as uh, representatives should have four different terms of two years. Everyone should be allotted up to eight years because. If you have congressional leadership like we have now, or congressional representatives, because they're not really leaders, um, if you had representatives like that that have been in office for 30, 40 years, that's how you see stagnation. And that's how you see overfunded and overbloated pension funds. You know, you look at somebody like a Pallone or a Paul Ryan, where they once they do 10 years, they automatically get 100% of their congressional pay for the rest of their life through a pension. It's absolutely ridiculous that they get paid that much money to do absolutely nothing. Uh, if you had term limits, that would put a check on the rep- – as well as the constituents as well. Constituents will be way more informed about what their representatives are doing if they – if the representatives did not have the backing from the county and local governments to continue running for office.
0: I think one of the things I'd be curious to know in that your solution was eight years – and you mentioned four years for the Senate, would that mean you'd want to change the Senate structure to actually change its years from six to four?
1: Absolutely. Six years is a very long time for one person to be serving.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting idea, especially given how many we give per state, having some more turnover could potentially help us regain better control in terms of movement power. Because the Senate has been one of the main forces that's been stagnating us in terms of taking progressive policy forward. Um, So I'd kind of of be curious to know, now that we've established Pallone has been in office for far too long, what really kind of geared you up to first want to run against Frank Pallone? What did he do that (laughs) was not really representing you?
1: Uh, I would say I was really inspired by Bernie Sanders running against a political machine in 2016, and it was it was uh, something to see for Donald Trump to go against every entrenched uh, politician as well on the Republican side to just completely, uh, sorry for my lack of words, to completely shit talk all like 16 other candidates on the GOP trail, and you know just have a following like that. Um, to be able to do what he did. But from what I saw with Senator Sanders and him being able to talk to so many younger people and so many Miss and underrepresented people and underrepresented people for so long to see what he did, it inspired me to be able to run against the machine as well, because if he was able to do it and get so far with low dollar donations versus what the DNC has always been trying to do and make sure that they only worry about the 1% of the rich and the wealthy, the people that fund their campaign accounts, that's what that's what I want to do for CD6. And that's why I ran against Representative Pallone in 2018.
0: I think Bernie has had that impact on so many people. I have to say he was really one of the energizing forces for myself. My background had always been slightly political. My mom had been a political activist in my local area. But I really never had too much attention to national politics until Bernie basically said, we all have to get into this and actually be aware to know what's going on and so that we can all actually rise up and start challenging some of these institutional forces. So I think it's really great that you had taken this step so early on. I'd be kind of curious to get your sense on what's kind of happening on the national stage just for a little bit before we wrap up. What do you think has been going on so far in these debates? Have you been liking the performance that Bernie has done? Has there been other candidates who have been impressing you as well?
1: I think his, I think Bernie's, um, performance at the last debate was lackluster. Um, I think what will get Bernie over is the amount of enthusiasm that he had in 2016. And again, I'm supporting Senator Sanders on the primary ballot when, when it comes out in June. Um, I think that he should definitely go back to what he was able to do in 2016, where he just came at Hillary and did everything possible to go against her, you know, Uber wealth, wealth, aristocratic standards that, that she lived up to. If he's able to get back to that, it would be wonders. He's he's the one candidate that I'm going to support. Um, it's just the hard part. And just like in this congressional race, too, where you're you're seeing his policies being represented by people other than himself this time. You know that the magic of his 2016 campaign was that he was the one person talking about uh, police officers should be you know citizens of the community rather than, you know, the crazy policing brutalities that they that they that. Um, that they exhibit throughout the community, uh, the power of Wall Street, the power of lobbyists. You saw all that in 2016. It's just that his policies have now been adopted by so many other candidates. And I guess it's drowned out his voice a little. And the reason why he's still in it is because of supporters like myself, and I guess yourself as well, where you see Bernie Sanders and you knew that he was there in 2016 fighting against what he was doing. And he's been doing the same thing for 30 something years where he's just talking about the 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 horrible quality of health care, the amount of military intervention and, and his interventionism that we've had in the last 30 years. Like he was the one person to, to say all of this against somebody like Hillary Clinton. And I hope that he's able to do better on the debate stage in the second round. I think he's going to be there until primary, but I want to see him being able to rip up those uh, establishment incumbents like he did in 2016. I want to see it.
0: I 100% agree with you. He was the true full package. He had all of the consistency factors. This wasn't just talk for the moment. He had shown it through his whole career. He really had it both from economically through foreign policy on all facets. The one interesting fact is that we now have a lot more choices than just Hillary Clinton opposing Bernie Sanders, as you mentioned. And that kind of gives us almost a good problem in a sense. I'd be kind of curious. Are there any candidates beyond Bernie who you would actually support as the nominee? I know, at least for myself, there has been some uninspiring candidates like Joe Biden, at least for myself, who I would not (laughs) feel motivated to go out and actually campaign for or assist or maybe even throw my support behind third parties. But has there been anyone who's been good for you that you feel has been mimicking Bernie and has been helping push forward the progressive agenda?
1: I think I would say my number two is Elizabeth Warren and probably my number three is uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I would say number two is Warren because she's had executive um, experience where she was the head of the CFPB. As well as being a senator as well. Um, And not just that, but she's introduced a good couple bills where it came before Bernie came up with the plan. So just like student loan, uh, student loan debt elimination, right? Where Elizabeth Warren came up with the bill before Bernie did. Um, ironically, it was a green policy first before the Democrats decided yeah. to adopt it. That's the funny part about it. But um, I think that she she's a progressive to the point where if Bernie somehow doesn't win, I'm still voting for him. If he doesn't win, I would be... Um, I would like Elizabeth Warren to be the next president, as well as Tulsi Gabbard. I think Tulsi has a nice history in the House of Representatives providing progressive bills and progressive legislation.
0: I 100% agree with you with that list of progressive women being
1: (laughs) disappointing if Bernie wasn't
0: the nominee, but suitable, we would still push forward and unite behind them. Uh, So I would kind of be curious to know what your real vision for what's going to define 2020? What do you think is going to be that defining issue, and what do you think are the actions that a lot of our community can go and take to start helping people like you get ready for 2020?
1: Oh, well, I think that the, the, what will happen in 2020 is going to be the recovery from Donald Trump and be able to bridge together a lot of divisioning uh, disunity within our country. Uh, it's gonna be about having actual plans for things rather than baseless rhetoric. Uh, it's gonna be about making sure Medicare for all is happening and healthcare is guaranteed to every citizen. It's gonna be about a community effort rather than, the, rather than yourself. That's the Republican ideology, that's Donald Trump's ideology, that's everyone in there that has an R next to their name. It's just worrying about themselves. But when you look at whoever's gonna win the Democratic nomination, I'm hoping it's progressive and not Biden. But you're going to be able to see a community-based effort um, on the presidential stage. How that will translate into municipal efforts, any person that asks me about my experience running for office, I'm going to tell them the same thing. You should run for office yourself. Um, And to be honest with you, not just Bernie Sanders running for office in 2016, uh, Obama's farewell address, He, I can't quote it exactly, but he said, if you're unhappy with your elected officials, You what you need to do is you need to go grab some clipboards and grab some signatures. And I took him up on that on that uh, on that challenge. That's that's what led me to go run for office when he had that farewell address and he challenged people. If you're pissed off with your elected representatives, just go grab some clipboards and go grab some signatures. That's exactly what I did. And I would tell anybody that that is fed up with the system. You know, if you want to run for city council, if you want to run for mayor, county freeholder, Sheriff representative, do it. Don't just talk about it, be about it. And if you if you don't want to run for office then continually help uh, younger candidates or candidates that are up against the machine. Help them run for office. you know, go for a three- hour canvassing shift, Call up some people for phone banking call up some people to fundraise for money. Help set events up, help you know manage campaigns. Just help the community in general because your effort is going to be part of a greater greater agenda. Javon, I couldn't agree with you
0: anymore. I personally am taking you up on that challenge. I've been thinking about that for a while. I'm trying to actually get myself into running for office, and I can't agree with you more that we need to get people more started from the grassroots, not just yelling into the void, but taking action to step up to the challenge and lead. So I 100% agree with you. If we're not satisfied with our representation, just like the both of us are in New Jersey, we need to step up to the plate and actually run for something. So I 100% agree with you. We need to start uniting as a force of the grassroots to support one another and actually stepping up to the plate and doing something about our lack of representation currently. Uh, with that, yeah. I just wanted to let you give a quick plug as we wrap up the show in terms of upcoming events or anything that you have going on that you want the people out there listening currently can take action right now. And we'll make sure that we can give all of that material to them down in the description below.
1: So very soon we'll start going door to door. We're gonna start going into our neighborhoods within CD6 and we'll start going door to door and letting people know that there's an option. There's another option it will be the same option that they had in 2018, but it will be bigger and better. Uh, this is gonna be a very, very great operation that we're having. Uh, for Javon Walker for Congress in CD six in 2020, this is a big election year. There are a lot of elections that are going to take place, and we're going to be part part of the effort to stop the the corporation, the the corruption that's going on within our levels of government. Um, this is a campaign that has been there before. We were the first campaign to primary an incumbent for 24 years, so we're tired of the machine. We're pissed off at the way that they're behaving and the actions that they're taking. This is something bigger than just a person running for office. This, if we're able to land this, this is gonna open so many doors for other people to run for office and say, I'm I'm done with the machine, I'm done with being targeted and persecuted based off of me just being an American citizen. We're gonna, this is a serious operation and we're hopeful on winning. This is a person that's been in office for 30 something years and you know, being an obstructionist, to a Medicare for all or any type of progressive policies in place, we're going to do this and it's going to take a community effort. And I hope that you're able to help out everyone.
0: Javon, I couldn't wish you well more in your race against Frank Pallone. Thank you so much again for coming on today. It's been a real treat learning more about your history as well as some of the great ideas that you're putting forward to replace this old ideology of Frank Pallone. Uh, I just want to let the folks out there, uh, know what we currently have going on as well as know that you can make sure that you can actually Support Javon not just by watching this and sharing this currently, but go to his website Go actually follow I know he's gonna have email lists for you I know he'll have opportunities for you to donate take action now It's really simple if you don't want to finish the rest of the video go click now that's a good substitute for just finishing up here, but For you that do stick around now, let me just let you know what we have going on here at the channel. One of the things that we just arranged is a big initiative that we're going to be having going on in September. We're having a candidate debate where we're having a representative uh, from the Bernie camp, the Andrew Yang camp, as well as the Tulsi Gabbard camp, coming on the show to have a large debate. We're going to have Scott on representing Andrew Yang. We're going to have Stephanie Quillot representing Bernie Sanders. And for Tulsi Gabbard, we're going to be having Nico House come on. So I believe this is going to be a great opportunity for you to learn about all these candidates heading into that third debate as you're going to experience all the madness that comes the second debate coming next week. I wanted to thank Javon once again for coming on. And I want, again, you've stuck around to learn about what we have going on. Now, actually, again, go take action. Go support Javon on his page. Until next time, my friends, this has been the Hill of Roses. Stay rosy.